The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Today's passage is from Numbers 26, and its verses 1 through the first part of 4, and then verse 51. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord commanded Moses. This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Well, hey, the only thing scarier to me than snakes, um, or at least as scary, because I'm pretty pretty messed up over snakes, but the only thing as scary to me as snakes um, are roller coasters. Snakes and roller coasters, man, they, they, they get me. Um, I've only ridden a few. It didn't take me very long to figure this out about myself. Haven't been on one in probably 21 years or more. Uh, but the very first one that I ever rode was the Timberwolf. Down, oh, good. This is going to go over well. Down at Worlds of Fun in, in Kansas City. Now, if you've ever been on the Timberwolf, you'll know that this thing is made out of wood. Which, can we all just agree? It sounds like a... Terrible idea, terrible idea. This is the only picture, it, it, this is the only picture I could find, and the, the blurry web version picture that I could find is just a testament to how terrifying this thing actually is, right? And now listen, if you're one of those people right now that is like, <laughs> the Timberwolf, that thing's not scary. Listen, tell it to my brain, all right? I can't, because my brain doesn't calculate it that way. Um, the, the Timberwolf, when you finally sort of get off of this wooden death trap. I mean, when you ride it, I mean, it's just like shaking and screeching and creaking and, and through this wood, like, I mean, the, the sounds and the feels and, and all of it, it just feels like the whole thing's going to blow apart and you're just going to fall off and die, right? And when you finally get off this wooden death trap after all the ups and downs and all that screeching and creaking, you're both relieved and amazed that you didn't die, right? You're amazed, really, to be alive at all. At least I was. And if you've been reading and following along in our Old Testament series here in the book of Numbers this fall, um, you've got a similar feeling about the people of God here, don't you? Uh, I mean, after all we've read, after all we've seen in the, books, uh, in the book of Numbers, all the ups, all the downs, the twists and the turns, the grumbling, the rebellion, the complaining, the idolatry, we are amazed, aren't we, that God's people have made it at all. In fact, if you knew nothing else about the rest of the Bible, like if, if you didn't, if, if you were just encountering this for the very first time and you didn't know what came next or there even was more to the story of, of God's people, having read what we've read in numbers so far, the chapters that we're looking at today would be shocking, shocking. And they are until we realize that God is faithful to do everything he said he would. God is faithful to do everything he said he would. Church, our God is faithful. It's why we sing, great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful to do everything that he said he would, and that is good news. 
It's good news. Look, in, in a world where um, no one keeps their word, in, in a world of broken promises, where, where people don't mean what they say, or they go back and redefine what they, they said, or they don't remember conveniently what they said, look, God never does that. God never overpromises and underdelivers. God never forgets what it is that he swore to do. Instead, he's faithful. He's faithful to do everything he said he would. That's like a, a banner that we could hang over all of Numbers chapters 26 through 30, which we're looking at this morning. And in light of this truth, that God is faithful to do everything that he said he would, you and I are to receive the faithfulness of God, or, or if you already have, rest in it. And secondly, we're to walk in faithfulness. The proper response to the faithfulness of God to us is to walk out our faithfulness to him. And then lastly, we're to trust in the faithfulness of God. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you got them to Numbers chapter 26 if you're not already there. Um, you're going to want a copy of God's word in front of you if you, if you can and at least kind of skim over. We're going to cover all of it so you know, it, it, we can only do it so well. The first thing I want to do is orient us to the text this morning by just doing a high-level flyover. All right, so just a high-level orientation to Numbers 26 through 30. Kind of follow along in your copy, maybe skim it a little bit as we go. It begins in chapter 26, verse 1, with these words, after the plague. After the plague that we just read about in chapter 25. This is the end of the first generation. It's the beginning of the new generation. And God commands Moses here to take a new census of all the people, men in particular, who were ages 20 years old and up, who are able to go to war, it says. After that, lots of verses, lots of numbers. This is the census proper, right? It's not just boring numbers. There's lots of good stuff in there that we're going to pass over this morning, actually. But I would encourage you to dig deeper on your own. And as you read through that, look for places where it breaks from just the numbers and gives you a little bit of commentary inserted in there. That's a good spot for you to dwell as you read through this passage yourself. But I also want to draw your attention to verse 51, which Annie read a minute ago, and the final count. 601,730. Church, this is amazing. This is truly amazing. If you remember back all the way to chapter 1, remember the first census in the total there? 603,550. After all we've seen, after all we've read of regarding the 40 years in the wilderness, after all the plagues, and the, the, remember the ground opened up and swallowed a whole bunch of them? And then the fire came out of the tabernacle, consumed a whole bunch, and then they, had this, then they had the snakes. And the snakes were biting them and they were dying and all that sort of stuff. After all of that, God has been faithful to maintain his people as a great nation. 601,730 men. 20 years old and up likely means as the whole Israel is still right around two and a half million people at least all together. God is preserving a people for himself despite all their wilderness shenanigans. <laughs> Next then beginning in verse 52 you might need to turn a page or two to get there. God commands Moses regarding how the land the promised land when they enter into it how it's going to be divided up and the word inheritance shows up five times in these five verses. The point God is making good on his promise. He's made them into a great nation. 
He's preserved them as a great nation, and now he intends for his great nation to inherit this great land, the land that he promised, clear back to Abraham and Abraham's descendants 400 years ago. Then there's the census of the Levites and a little family history there, followed by a census summary in verses 63 and 65, which tell us these were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness at Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. In other words, the old generation has passed away. Behold, the new has come, just as God said it would. First half of chapter 27 then introduces us to the daughters of Zelophehad and a unique situation that they were in. This account is so significant, actually, that we're going to hold off on looking at it in detail today. Instead, we're going to return to it in a few weeks when we take up chapter 36, which is directly linked to this passage. But let me just point out to you the faith of the daughters of Zelophehad. Remember, God's people are not in the land yet. They're still in the plains of Moab. But God has just commanded Moses regarding the inheritance of the land and Zelophehad's daughters in an amazing showing of faith come forward and make their case for land. The land that they trust their God will give to his people. They trust him to do everything he said he would. Next, we read of the succession plan from Moses to Joshua, beginning in chapter 27, verse 12. We're reminded that Moses won't enter the promised land, specifically because, remember, he, remember when he rebelled, and he, and he rebelled against God's word in the wilderness of Zim, and he struck the rock twice, when he, he was supposed to speak to the rock, he struck it twice, failing to uphold God as holy in the eyes of the people. We're told here that Moses is going to die. He doesn't actually die in this passage. This isn't, his death isn't fulfilled until the end of Deuteronomy. But look at what Moses asked God to do in verse 16. He says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. God honors Moses' request, tells him it's going to be Joshua who leads the people. He'll be both warrior and shepherd. And yet there'll be a significant difference between Moses and Joshua. Whereas the Lord spoke to Moses directly, he spoke to Moses face to face, Joshua will communicate in a different way through Eleazar. Aaron's son, the priest, who will inquire on his behalf using the sacred stone that we don't know much about, honestly, the umum. This brings us to a lengthy section then on offerings and festivals in chapters 28 and 29. You ever hit this spot in your Bible reading plan? You can be honest. You ever hit this in your Bible reading plan? You're like, all right, let's just, let's see what Deuteronomy has to say. You know, like, let's just fast forward here a little bit, a little bit. Listen, while this might not be the most riveting of reading for you in your private devotion life, what I want you to understand is that this is God preparing his people for life in the promised land. It is exciting. 
It's, a, it's to be a life that's going to be filled with worship. In fact, as you read through these chapters, what you begin to see, it's like an Old Testament church calendar here. It begins with daily offerings, then weekly offerings, then monthly offerings. That gives way into annual festivals. The annual festivals are like this, this annual recounting of all that God has done, right? It starts with the Passover and celebrating their salvation, their, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. That gives way then to the Feast of Weeks, commemorating the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, where God spoke to them and told them how to live as his people. Then you've got the Feast of Trumpets, which was to be a day of solemn rest. No ordinary work was to be done on that day. We need to bring back the Feast of Trumpets, I think, right? Then you got the Day of Atonement, marking their redemption. The, the one day of the year, each year, where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for their sin. And then lastly, if you've got your Bible open, you'll see, gets the most attention of the section, the Feast of Booths, which is all about a, a joyful remembrance of God's historic guidance of his people during the very 40 years of wilderness wandering that they've just completed. <laughs> this is God saying, hey, when you enter into the land that I'm giving you, I want you to remember everything that I've done for you. I want you to remember my faithfulness and worship me. This then leads into chapter 30, which is all about vows, a section we'll look at more closely here in a moment. But we, if we just step back and look at the whole, here's what we have. We have the people. We have the land, an inheritance, right? A leader and worship. And then this business about vows, we'll save that for, for later. But the high-level flyover view of Numbers 26 through 29 reveals to us that despite their unfaithfulness, God has preserved a people. It's a people to whom he is giving an inheritance to, the promised land. He's provided a leader, a warrior shepherd who will lead them there where they will settle and live with God. He will be their God. They will be his people and they will worship him all year around every year from here forward. This is what God has been promising. It's finally coming true. God is faithful to do everything he said he would. What are the people to do? Receive it. Rest in it. Like to, to receive the faithfulness of God and rest in the faithfulness of God. And, and, and listen, you might be thinking right now, okay, uh, nice information. Handy little overview you got there. If I ever need, you know, like a copy of the Old Testament church calendar, now I know where to find it, so, you know, thanks for that. But what's this got to do with me? <laughs> well, church, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Is he not? Which means not only was God faithful to do everything he said he would, you know, like back then, he is faithful to do everything he said he would right here and right now. He promised to send a Savior for us, and he has, Jesus. He promised to forgive our sins and remember them no more, and he has, 
through Jesus. Friends, God is faithful to do everything he said he would. And if you've never received that before, and if you've, if you've never, just, like, look, just like the Old Testament Israelites, uh, despite your undeservedness, if you've never received the faithfulness of God, never received the promised Savior and the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus, like, today's the day. It's today. And if you're thinking, well, today can't be the day. My life's a total roller coaster. You know, like, I, I'm here on Sunday, then I am a, I'm a pretty, pretty big mess. I'm a hot mess during the week. I promise that I'm going to try to do, do better and try harder, but then I, I can't keep it up. Listen, that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. God's Old Testament people were not recipients of his faithfulness because they deserved it. They weren't recipients because they made promises to him that they kept. No, they're recipients because he made promises to them and kept them. God is faithful to do everything he said he would. You have only to receive that faithfulness. But then also, not only was God faithful to do everything that he said he would, not only is God faithful to do everything he said he would, God will continue to be faithful to do everything he said he would. If we go back to that summary picture, it's a picture of God's work in Numbers 26 through 29. It's also a picture of God's work in us as Christians. God has made you his people, church. He's made you his people. You've been delivered by Jesus out of slavery to sin, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, who are you now? God's people. God's people. How did that happen? Simply by receiving the faithfulness of God manifest through Jesus and trusting in him. And you're his people now. United with Christ, by Christ, and there's a promised inheritance for you. Heaven itself, our eternal promised land, where there's no more bad diagnoses, no more eating disorders, no more addictions, no more temptation or, or suffering, no more arguments with your spouse about money. No more struggles in parenting. No, no more stresses that come with caring for aging parents. No more funerals. No more difficult relationships to navigate. No more politics. No more racism. No more confusion over gender, gender identity. No more war. Just Eternal, comprehensive peace. Shalom. This is your promised inheritance as his redeemed people. And he sent a leader, the Holy Spirit, who lives in each of us who belong to him. And he's leading us, he's guiding us to our eternal home where we will live with God forever and ever. He will be our God. We will be his people. We will worship him. All, all things on earth are gonna worship him on into eternity forever and ever without end. 
Rest in this, church. Rest in it. Rest in the future faithfulness of God. And listen, I know that the wilderness is scary. Way scarier than roller coasters. I know the wilderness called life is is hard. I know that you have no idea what you're doing half the time. Or how you're going to get through it. But God does. He will see you through. Listen, if you're one of his people, he will deliver you to the eternal promised land. He said he would. And God will continue to be faithful to everything he said he would. Rest in the faithfulness of God. Now listen, not only are we to receive and rest in the faithfulness of God, We're also to walk in faithfulness ourselves. And this is what we see in the opening verses of chapter 30. Turn there in your copy of God's word. Chapter 30 of Numbers. Verse 1 says this. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. There's a number of different kinds of oaths and vows that God's Old Testament people might make. Or like the Nazarite vow that was that you can find in Numbers chapter 6, where anyone, male or female, could take a vow and separate him or herself to the service of the Lord. It was a, a vow of wholehearted devotion, you'll remember. There's other vows where the person making the vow promised to offer a specific sacrifice to the Lord if he answered their petition. Or maybe think of Hannah. And uh, First Samuel, who vowed that if the Lord would give her a son, she'd dedicate him to serve the Lord all the days of his life. Again, lots of different kinds of vows. Typically, commonly, they had to do with God. Committing oneself to serving him in some way, or sacrificing to him, or dedicating something to him. And regardless of the content of the vow, the point was this. If you make a vow, if you swear an oath, you shall not break your word. You shall do according to all that proceeds from your mouth. Why would this be important? Well, because we're his covenant people. And as such, we're to reflect his likeness. But even more, it's a response to his faithfulness to us. In other words, just as God is faithful to do everything he said he would, so too we, as recipients of his faithfulness, are to be faithful to do everything we say we will. In short, we're to be faithful as he is faithful. We're to be like him. He always does according to all the proceeds out of his mouth. That's what chapters 26 and 29 are all about. And we're to do likewise. We're to be people of our word. You know, Jesus takes this up um, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, don't even take an oath. Because there were those who were trying to wiggle out of their oaths through loopholes. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be faithful to do all that you say you will. And listen, when we're in number 30, like when you're reading through this on your own, which I know you do often, I bet that you don't often hit Numbers 30, a passage like this, and say, I'm going to apply this to myself. Think carefully about the vows that I make to God. We don't typically think about vows that we make to God. And yet, in one way, isn't that exactly what we've done 
and becoming a Christian and professing Christ? It's not an explicit vow, but haven't we agreed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength and love our neighbor as ourself? Isn't that part of what it means to be a Christian? Haven't we agreed, in a sense, to the Great Commission? To go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded? And aren't we ourselves included in that? Aren't we to observe, to obey all that he commanded? After all, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments, Jesus said. And so if we say we love him, aren't we also saying that we'll keep his commandments? We are. And there's to be a seriousness about that to us. You and I are to walk in faithfulness in faithful obedience to the Lord and his word. We're to take that very seriously. Like, like we're to take walking in faithfulness as serious as we take receiving and resting in God's faithfulness. And we don't get them out of order. We don't walk in faithfulness in order to gain God's faithful response to us. No, it works the other way around. Because God has been faithful to us, we respond in faithfulness to him. We do what we say we will because he's done what he said he would. If you belong to Jesus, if you have publicly professed that through baptism, you said, I'm his now. I belong to him. I'm one of his disciples. Like, I I follow him, I worship him, I obey him, I live for him now. This is an essential component, actually, to our Christian witness. Like, people around you who you know, who who aren't Christian, they're not reading the Bible to figure out what, what it means to be a Christian. They're reading you. They're reading your life. They're drawing conclusions about what it means to be a Christian. Do they see this change in you? Or do they see you ducking and dodging through the loopholes? Perhaps not doing all that you said that you'll do, not living for Jesus in all of your life and being careful to observe all that he's commanded. Perhaps going to church on Sundays but getting trashed on Fridays. Or, you know, worshiping Jesus through your personal devotion time but then losing it with your kids or being a jerk to your coworkers or your boss. People see that, don't they? And they make conclusions about what it means to be a Christian based off of what they see in our lives. That should humble us. That should help us to take God's living faithfully for God. Should it help us to take it more seriously? They're making conclusions about what it means to be a Christian. They're also making conclusions about the character of God. Either he doesn't care about how you're living, or maybe he's like that too. Maybe he's not faithful to do all that he says he will. Church, God is faithful to do everything he said he would. And as those who have received the faithfulness of God, we too are to be faithful in everything that we said we will. And yet, we're not perfect at that, are we? We're not perfected yet, are we? 
And does that mean that we can let off of this a little bit? We can, we can kind of, you know, hey, maybe we don't need to pay attention so much to that walking in faithfulness stuff. No, by no means. But it does mean, ultimately, we're to trust in the faithfulness of God. And believe it or not, this is what the rest of chapter 30, where it comes in. Anyone read the rest of chapter 30? It's interesting. It's interesting. In fact, when we look at it, it kind of rubs our modern sensibilities the wrong way on the surface. Verses 1 through 2 of chapter 30 are directed at men. It just says, keep your vow, do what you say you'll do. But then we get 14 verses about women and their vows. Two for men, 14 for women. First, we're told if a young woman still in her father's house makes a vow, that her vow is, is not binding unless her father ratifies it. Or more precisely, if her dad didn't object to it on the day he first heard about it, then she was bound by it. But the father has an opportunity to contest it, though, and if he does, she'd be absolved from her vow, and the Lord will forgive her, verse 5 says. Next, we have the case of a young woman who has made a vow and then marries, in this case, her new husband. When he first hears of this vow, even if it was an old vow that her dad didn't veto, he now has the opportunity to veto the vow, and if he does, the Lord will forgive her. Verse 8 says. Verse 9 tells us that a widow or a divorced woman, if she makes a vow, she's bound to it, having no husband, no longer living in her father's house. And then finally, the last scenario is of a married woman who makes a vow as a married woman. Her husband has the opportunity to void the vow if he does so when he first hears of it. And if he does, verse 12, the Lord will forgive her. What are we to make of all this? Well, first, it needs to be said that a woman's vow was not less binding because the Bible views women as being inferior to men or less rational than men or more whimsical than men and therefore needing more protection from making rash vows than men. Nothing like that. Women were free to make oaths and vows just as men were. We saw that in number six. We see it again with Hannah in 1 Samuel. Second, we need to note that the Bible does teach here and in other places in the New Testament the, this concept of male headship. And as controversial as that can sound to male ears, it's in the Bible. And God created men and women. He created us equal but different. And he created an ordering to the relationship of husband and wife. The New Testament affirms this in 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians chapter 5, when it says that the husband is the head of a wife. Listen, that can be, that has been massively abused in the history of the church in terrible, horrible ways, but the abuses don't negate what the Scripture teaches here. And they don't define what, this, what the Scripture teaches here. And so we've got to look to Scripture and how that is to be played out in loving and respectful in self-sacrificing ways as Christ loved the church, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Men taking on humble and gentle responsibility, answering to the Lord in such relationships. Listen, there's a, certainly an element of this involved here in, in Numbers 30 where, where to see a, this young woman under her father's care and responsibility. We, we see that she's under his care and responsibility until the time when she comes under the care and responsibility of her husband. This is why, for example, in our modern wedding ceremonies, what do we do? Typically, commonly, a father walks his daughter down the aisle and gives her in marriage to the young man that she's about to marry. It's a visual picture, in some ways, of the concept behind Numbers chapter 30. 
So there's an element of this here, but also, listen, male children, boys, young men, were under the headship of their fathers living at home as well. And if history in my life proves anything, you know, even more likely to make rash vows than a young woman, why was so much focus on the women here? And why is it here? Not just why is it in the Bible, but why is it here in the Bible, the 30th chapter of the book of Numbers? Well, listen, Ian Duguid, an Old Testament scholar from Westminster Theological Seminary, in his commentary on Numbers, he contends that the reason this is here and the reason it's here is to serve a larger narrative purpose of illustrating the relationship between the Lord and his people. Now think about this. You remember last week? And the idolatry of the people. We talked about idolatry last week, and we talked about how sometimes in the Old Testament, idolatry was likened to spiritual adultery. With God as the faithful husband, and Israel as the adulterous wife. The good suggests, and I think he's right, that we're to apply those similar relational categories here. Applying the same approach here, he says, we may observe that the Lord has perfectly fulfilled the demand of Numbers 30, verse 2. To carry out every promise or oath he has made to do everything that proceeds from his mouth. Here is an anchor for Israel's soul. The Lord is faithful to do everything he promised. He then goes on and accordingly likens the young woman of Numbers 30 who makes her vow, he likens her to Israel, who foolishly bound herself to other gods through her idolatry and yoking herself with those other gods, following them instead of her true husband, God himself. And yet, like the wife and daughter of Numbers 30, she was not free to make such oaths and rashly bind herself to them. Unless the Lord were to ignore her oaths, okay? Like the women of Numbers 30, unless the Lord were to ignore her oaths or divorce her or were himself to die, making her a widow, like verse 9 says, all of those are unthinkable alternatives. Unless the Lord were to ignore the oaths, her foolish oaths could never stand. Israel might seek to become like the nations all around her and worship gods of wood and stone, but her desire can never be achieved. As long as the Lord was her covenant head, he would step in and nullify her oath, freeing her from the folly, forgiving her, to use the language of the text. Here's what all this means. Our hearts are fickle. Are they not? I mean, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to, prone to leave the God I love. Have you ever noticed every time we sing that song, we sing that line a little bit louder than the others? Why is that? Because we know it's true. We resonate with that even more so than we do with some of the other lines of the song. We know it's true that even though God is faithful to do all that he said he would, and that in response, we too are to be faithful in everything we say we'll do. We're not. We don't. What's more, we're not even able 
We do things we don't want to do. We don't do things we want to do. There's a battle that rages in us, Paul says in Romans 7, and we don't always win. We still strive. Of course we do. We're commanded to and empowered to by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. But when we fail, this is our comfort. Our trust is not in our faithfulness. Our trust is in the faithfulness of God. Your salvation, your belonging to him as one of his people, and therefore your promised heavenly inheritance and all the rest, None of that is based on your ability to perfectly keep your vows, to perfectly serve God, to perfectly walk in perfect faithfulness all the perfect time. You can't. You won't. No, instead, it's based on a covenant. The new covenant that Christ ushered in. With him as the head, him as the divine father and husband, and you as the daughter and wife. He is faithful to do everything he said he would. He always keeps his vows to save you, to forgive you, to preserve you, to keep you, to grow you, to lead you all the way to the promised land of heaven. He's faithful to do everything he said he would. You now, in response, are to be faithful to do everything that you said you will, but even when you're not, even when you're faithless, God is faithful. He faithfully paid the penalty for all your broken vows, all your unfaithfulness, and because you trust in Jesus and belong to Jesus, he forgives you. Trust in the faithfulness of God. Listen, when you're overwhelmed and weary and you feel like giving up, trust in the faithfulness of God. When the ups and downs of this roller coaster wilderness life are wearing you out and the, the downs are so scary, you have no idea what to do, Trust in the faithfulness of God. When suffering comes, and it is crushingly overwhelming, so crushingly overwhelming that the thought of striving for faithfulness also feels crushingly overwhelming, trust in the faithfulness of God. When you're struggling with sin and doubts arise, when you're looking at your life and you're discouraged by the lack of progress that you see and you're starting to cause you to doubt God is even real or that he's actually done anything in your life to make progress as a Christian, trust in the faithfulness of God. When you feel lost in the wilderness, when you feel lonely in the wilderness, when you feel low in the wilderness, or the least in the wilderness, trust in the faithfulness of God. When the longings for heaven are so strong in you that everything around you feels broken and disappointing, trust in the faithfulness of God. He's faithful to do everything he said he would. He's saved you. He's made you his own. He is watching over you. You are under his fatherly, husbandly, covenant protection and care. And he forgives you for your waywardness, Christian. 
He knows you're prone to wander. He knows you feel it. He knows that you're prone to leave the God you love, and yet he has taken your heart and sealed it in his courts above. He's promised you a glorious, eternal inheritance. You are bound for the kingdom. He's put his Holy Spirit in you to lead you there. And one day, there'll be no more wilderness wanderings at all. And we'll worship Jesus as his shalom and glory fills the earth. Church, God is faithful to do everything he said he would do. You too are to be faithful to do everything he say you will. But even when you're not, even when you're faithless, he is faithful. So trust in the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and we praise you for your faithfulness. And we ask that you would help us now by your spirit to grow in walking in faithfulness ourselves and ultimately help us trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.